The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Exodus chapter 20, very important passage. Exodus chapter 20. I've labeled this sermon Decalogue and Deliverance. Because today we are, we are embarking upon a vast topic, which is God's law in the Old Testament. And today, today is more of a, a kind of theological introduction, a theological foundation. We're going to take nine sermons on the Ten Commandments. If you wonder why our math is so bad, it's because... The first two commandments we'll take together, but nine sermons on the Ten Commandments. Today's a a theological introduction, but I want to recommend one resource. This book by Kevin DeYoung, entitled The Ten Commandments, subtitled What They Mean, Why They Matter, and Why We Should Obey Them. So I recommend that. Nice little resource, very accessible. Sharon's going to come and pray for us and read our passage in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it. And would you teach us, Father? Thank you for the beauty of your law. And we pray that it would be even more beautiful in our eyes after today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading this morning from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And how would it? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak for us, or you speak to us, and we will listen, 
but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. I wonder, how do you think about God's law? What comes to your mind? Don't shout it out, but but think about it. What comes to your mind? How do you think about God's law? How does God's law land on your soul right now? Some might quote the Apostle Paul. You are not under law, but under grace. So I don't need God's law, don't want God's law. It has no relevance to my life. Thank you very much. Others might have the opposite reaction. You think of God's law as almost a a ladder to climb, a a means of, of getting or maintaining God's favor, but you know you're not keeping them fully as you ought, and so you feel condemned just hearing that read to you seems discouraging. Probably there's a spectrum of responses between those two poles. Some positive, God's law reveals God's character to me. Some negative, I've got to be saved from this thing, rescued from this thing called law. And others confused. How how much is relevant today? Can I have shellfish for lunch? Well, like I said, we're going to devote nine sermons to these Ten Commandments. Today's the advertisement. Today's the movie preview for those sermons. Today, I want to just persuade you of something. I want to convince you of something. I want to convince you of something theologically. That you leave here believing that God's law is good and needed for your Christian life. That's the advertisement. That God's law, as we see it here in Exodus 20, this piece is good and and it's, it's actually needed by you in your Christian life. Let's survey the passage in three parts. First, let's call the first part the people of God's law. The people of God's law Back in verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the prologue to the Ten Commandments, or as it's called later, the Ten Words in Hebrew, from which we get our word Decalogue. In this prologue, God reintroduces himself, doesn't he? I am the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name. The Lord, your God. Do you see that? Your God. In a personal relationship with you folks already, Israelites, notice who brought you out, who delivered you from the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. In other words, we must view the commandments he's about to utter in light of what he's already done. To understand these correctly, we must catch what has already happened. So what's already happened? Well, actually think back to the beginning of the Bible. 
Think back to the book of Genesis where God revealed himself to a guy named Abraham, the father of his people, right? The father of his people, and God made a covenant with Abraham, a solemn agreement. That's what covenant means. A solemn agreement with Abraham based on God's grace. A covenant of grace. In the book of Exodus, God is acting on that covenant of grace. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God hears the groaning of his people in Egypt, and it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and begins to act. God acted on that covenant of grace to redeem, to rescue his people from slavery. And now, having done all that, now he's going to give his rescued people his good gift of law. The order is important, friends. It's covenant, then commandment. It's, it's deliverance, and then Decalogue. See, there's a popular misunderstanding that, that God's law was Israel's means of salvation. That they were saved by law-keeping, but we are saved by grace. But that's not what the Old Testament law is really doing. God has delivered them from slavery and giving his good gift of law. So law, just think theologically with me for a moment. Law is the defining feature of this Sinai covenant, it's called. Law is the defining feature, but we're still seeing the overarching covenant of grace in the Bible. Friends, grace is the only way fallen people relate to a holy God. So law is the defining feature of Sinai, but grace, you might say, is the foundation. Think about it. A large part of the Sinai covenant provides sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for sins. That's God's grace. That's grace. Much of the book of Leviticus is sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because of God's grace. So if you read Exodus 20 as a ladder to achieve God's favor, or somehow to maintain God's favor in your life, or to make God love you more, please hear me. Exodus 20 is not about how to get reconciled to God. Exodus 20 was for them how to live as God's reconciled people. It's, it's a lot like the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution has a preamble it begins, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, dot, dot, dot. That preamble first establishes who this people is, and then the Constitution is going to talk about how they're going to organize themselves. That's kind of like what's happening here. This is the preamble, the prologue, where God says, you are my redeemed people, first of all. And then he's going to talk about how he's going to organize them. So grace, friends, grace, grace is the locomotive pulling this train, you might say, for Israel and also for us. So you might ask at this point, Tab, are you saying we are, quote unquote, under the law? 
Are you saying we're under the law today, Tab? No. And yes. No, no. The Christian is not, quote unquote, under the Sinai covenant as the means of relating to God. As the Apostle Paul says, you are not under law, under grace. There's been a change in covenant with the coming of Christ. We are not, quote unquote, under law in that sense, but but we are in another because there are different aspects of God's law. Again, track with me. It's common to think of God's law with three parts or three aspects, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil laws organizing their society as a theocracy, a nation with God ruling them, which is not what we are in the U.S. Civil, I'm sorry, that's civil laws. Ceremonial laws ordering their religious life, the sacrifices, the dietary laws. And then third, moral laws, God's unchanging moral rights and wrongs. Now, that doesn't fully work, to be honest. It doesn't fully work because all of God's law to the Israelites was moral. They didn't have that distinction. If they didn't do the civil and ceremonial stuff, that was a moral failure for them. So it was all moral for them. And for us, we can learn from all of God's law in ways. Those ceremonial aspects teach us about God's holiness. The sacrifices teach us what sin requires and deserves, etc. So that threefold distinction doesn't fully work. It's not watertight, but it is useful. It has useful handles. Maybe a better analogy is one that Rick and Dan and I heard recently. It's of Jesus as a filter, a filter. Every morning when I get up, I first get out my pour over for my coffee, this plastic thing. And then I put the filter into the pour over and I take my Pete's coffee grounds from Costco And then I get my hot water and I pour in the hot water and I set the timer for exactly four minutes. So it'll steep for four minutes and I have four minutes of much anticipation. And then after four minutes is up, some stuff is absorbed in the filter, right? The filter gets wet. It absorbs some water. Some stuff is filtered out, namely the coffee grounds, thankfully. And some stuff passes through the filter into my mug, my delicious coffee. Think of Jesus like that, as a filter for God's law as it relates to you today. Jesus absorbed some things like the sacrificial system. He is the final sacrifice. No more sacrifices needed. The sacrificial system was absorbed by Jesus, though it still has application like trust his sacrifice or offer our bodies as living sacrifices, etc. Christ filters out filters out things unique to the theocracy of ancient Israel, like the dietary laws. Jesus declared all foods clean. So the dietary laws don't come to our lives at all. 
We can learn from them, but they don't come to our lives at all, so you can go and have that shellfish for lunch. But Christ passes through some things, doesn't he? Directly to us, namely, God's unchanging moral requirements, as summarized before you in the Ten Commandments. Nine of the ten, nine of the ten are explicitly repeated in ways in the New Testament. The only one that's not repeated explicitly is the Sabbath command. That's debated. We'll talk about that later. So if your reaction, friends, to this passage is, I'm under grace, not law. I don't need Exodus 20. I hope you're rethinking that. That that could even be a dangerous place to be. Friends, we are always under the absolute moral authority of our creator. So the question is, will you embrace? Will you embrace God's commandments as good? As good and relevant for your life, will you embrace them that way? That's the people. Second, the heart. Second, the heart of God's law. Secondly, the heart. It is said that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. I did not count them. I am taking other people's word for it, but that's a lot. Yet here is, friends, the heart, the core, the the center, if you will, verses 3 through 17. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Now, think of the uniqueness of those Ten Commandments. They are being spoken directly by God to the people from the top of Mount Sinai or Horeb. God is speaking them directly. They're going to ask later on, would you have God speak to you instead, Moses? They are, we're told later, written down by the finger of God on tablets of stone, the only part of Scripture that is said to be so. And they are perfectly reflecting God's perfect, holy character. So here you could really say, this is a unique section. This is, friends, the heart of God's law. The first four are said to describe our duty to God. The next six are said to describe our duty to one another. But that doesn't fully work either because they're all Godward, aren't they? To murder or commit adultery is not just sinning against that person. It's sinning against God. Better is how Jesus summarized the law. When asked, what is the great commandment, singular? What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, love God and love neighbor which are inextricably connected. Love for God is what it's about, which then fuels love for neighbor. So so what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this heart of God's law? How should we apply it to ourselves? Well, again, we're thinking a bit theologically. We're preparing for nine sermons to come. There are often said three uses of the law. Restraint, conviction, and guidance is my word. 
Restraint in society, it's still wrong to murder. Conviction leading to Christ. And third, for the Christian, guidance or or direction for living a life that glorifies God. It's almost like having a compass. A compass for your life. Imagine you're out in the woods and you're lost. If you have a compass, it will orient you to the right direction. It will point to true north, and then you'll get your bearings, and you'll know which way to go forward. That's what God's moral law does here. It orients you. In any situation, any ethical situation you're facing right now, in some form or fashion, this passage can be a compass for you, orienting you to what's right and wrong in God's eyes, what's loving and not loving in God's eyes, so you can move forward. Let me show you what I mean. Track with me, hang with me. There is some payoff here. Eight of the ten are framed negatively. It's what we usually think, right? What not to do. But each of those has a positive implication of what to do. So do not worship idols implies positively worship God rightly. Do not murder implies positively preserve and value life. Do not commit adultery implies embrace God's good sexual ethic for all of life. Do not steal implies respect other people's property, even work and give. So we're going to teach each of those commandments, not just what not to do, but also what to do. Then your compass is functioning. And Each applies not just outwardly to behavior, but inwardly to our hearts. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, quoting the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, the lawgiver himself, I say to you, everyone who is angry, angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Is Jesus saying murder is the same as anger? No. No, but he is saying the command do not murder applies within also. That if we're harboring sinful anger in our hearts, we're breaking the commandment inwardly. So there's negative and positive. There's inward and outward. And these commandments are not just for us individually, but also corporately. They show us how to live life corporately, together. In a sense, what you're seeing here is a picture of how human society should be and will be one day in a new heavens and a new earth. So, friends, we need this compass because every day the the gravitational pull of my heart is to autonomy, which means self-law. And every day, the gravitational pull of your heart is to autonomy, self-law. I'm not trying to offend you, truly. But you and I woke up predisposed to wanting to be our own law, and we need this compass orienting us back to a Godward direction. If you're tracking with me, I think 
you're starting to realize these commandments in Exodus 20 have an amazing potential, a forming and shaping potential. Peter Lightheart, I think, puts this really well. He has written the following. We have that quote. Do we have a Peter Lightheart quote? Farah, do you have a Peter Lightheart quote? Yes, here's Peter. The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, are a character portrait of Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. The Ten Words, notice this, lay out the path of imitatio Dei, imitating God, because they lay the path of imitatio Christi, imitating Christ. See the forming potential there? If I said to you, hey, I have discovered the pathway of imitating God and so imitating the God-man, Jesus, would you have interest? Well, here it is in summary form in verses 3 through 17. Here's the pathway of imitating God, Lightheart says, because it's the pathway of imitating Christ. That's spiritual formation. That's being formed in the image of Jesus. Or Dallas Willard kind of a father figure of the modern spiritual formation movement. He wrote once, walking in the law, in the law, walking in the law with God restores the soul because the law expresses the order of God's kingdom and God's own character. Grace, he says, grace is also essential. But catch this, but not grace as formless spurts of permissiveness that thrust the law aside. Friends, there are a lot of Christians, I fear, who think of God's grace as formless spurts of permissiveness. That's autonomy. That's self-law. There are a lot of Christians, I fear, that want to thrust the law aside. But Willard is saying, no. Walking with God this way restores your soul, forms you to the image of Jesus. So my question to you, secondly, is, will you embrace these commandments as needed in your life? As needed. Good, yes, and also needed, needed. Here's this, I'm going to give you a practical suggestion. Martin Luther would pray through the Lord's Prayer, and then he says if he had time, he would pray through the Ten Commandments. And he would pray through each commandment in four ways. Instruction, I want to just be taught by it, and then um, thanksgiving, thanking God for what he sees there, and then confession as he sees his sin, and then prayer or intercession. You might try that one day this week and see if you're not formed in a glorious way. Or take one of the commandments. Take one where you need some forming help, some shaping work in your soul, and pray through that grid, instruction, thanksgiving, confession, intercession. See if God doesn't meet you with his glorious grace. Third, we're not quite done. 
Third, the mediator. Third section, the mediator for God's law. The mediator. Verse 18, now, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Lest we forget the setting. Lest we forget what the people are seeing and hearing. This, this is, you might recall from Exodus 19, this is a theophany. This is a physical manifestation of God himself. Mount Sinai is smoking. There's thunder. There's lightning. And then blasts of a trumpet that are growing louder and louder and louder. It is a theophany of the Holy One. And friends, this is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God to whom we're accountable. And he's physically manifesting himself. And the people are understandably terrified. Verse 19. They said to Moses, <laughs> you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let, do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses, if we keep hearing God directly speak to us, we ain't going to live. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The encounter is so terrifying, they say, Moses, you speak to us instead of God speak to us. In other words, Moses, be our mediator. Be our go-between, between us and God. And so Moses, their mediator, says, calm down, calm down, calm down. This could be helpful in your soul if you rightfully fear God, if you hold him in awe and reverence. And we need the same, don't we? A holy fear that protects you. Awe and reverence. But something is still lacking, isn't it? Before these people leave Sinai, they're going to make a golden calf as their God. So they're, they're rightfully afraid right now, but man, that's going to wear off super fast. We need this Godward fear, this, this awe and reverence before the Holy One, our Maker. And yet the law, through this mediator, can only go so far. Moses can only speak for God. He cannot obey God in their place like they need, like you need. And I need. No amount of obedience on the part of Moses is going to help these people. In fact, Moses cannot atone for their disobedience. 
Moses himself is not going to be allowed into the land for his own disobedience. Moses cannot atone for their disobedience or yours or mine because this mediator is pointing ahead to the ultimate mediator who does all that for you. Look at Romans chapter 8 just to see this briefly. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, by sending the ultimate mediator in the likeness of sinful flesh, wearing our humanity, and, oh, these are precious words, and for sin. Just go back briefly. And for sin. He condemned your sin in the flesh. Okay. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, are you seeing what that is saying to you this morning? God's law has a certain weakness to it, weakened by our weakness of the flesh. It cannot save. It wasn't meant to do so. So God sent his son in our humanity, the God-man, to do what you can do and Moses couldn't do. He obeyed in your place. He obeyed every commandment every day in your place. He fully obeyed in your place. And that perfect record of obedience is credited to your account by faith alone. It's downloaded to your account. It's like broadband. It just all comes in. The full record of the lifelong obedience of the God-man is downloaded to your account before the living God by faith alone, by the open-handed receiving of a gift that you desperately need. That's called justification. And not only that, not only that, he sanctifies you. He sets you apart in him and by him and for him. And you are being progressively changed from within so that the power that the law lacks comes to you through that mediator. So God's law is good and needed because it will direct you to Jesus again and again. And you know what else? It'll keep you amazed at grace. If you are here like, I'm less amazed. Like, Rick, those were great songs, and they just didn't resonate with me. Come back to Exodus 20 this week. See your need for Jesus. Get amazed again. Donald Gray Barnhouse said the law of God is like a mirror. It's a biblical metaphor. The law, he said, is like a mirror. You look at this mirror and you see that your face is dirty. But what you do not do is take the mirror off the wall and rub it on your face to try to clean your face, do you? What do you do? You look in the mirror, you see your face is dirty, and that drives you to the cleansing agent of the water. 
Friends, that's what God's law does for you. It drives you to the cleansing agent of Jesus Christ. His blood, his righteousness. So will you embrace these commandments to direct you to Jesus again and again and again? Friends, I hope you're getting convinced. God's law in Exodus 20 is good and needed. It's good and relevant. It's needed, and it points you back to Jesus again and again and again. So let's turn to him right now. Would you pray with me? And those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can prepare to do so. And I don't know what the Lord's been speaking to you about this morning. But this is an opportunity. We just pause so you can interact with God. That was a lot of information. Ask God to, in some form, take it from head to heart. And if you're here, even you say, I need this mediator. You're right. So do I. So do we. You can turn to him now. In faith. The open-handed receiving of a gift. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this unique, rich section of your word. Help us to see it as good because you are good. Help us to see it as needed that we'd be formed and shaped as your word does. Help us to see it as good and needed because it drives us back to Jesus our mediator who obeyed in our place, died in our place, and rose in our place. Help us now to have increased joy in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.